The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. This is John Alice. I'm the writer, producer, and an actor on the podcast On Top of Hooper's Hill. Our show is one part of a much larger transmedia project called Weatherfront. I want to say just a little bit about what that means. One crucial challenge of modern life has to do with keeping our hearts intact in the midst of constant crises from all directions. There's no straight line through a dizzying world that keeps us always off balance and our perceptions overwhelmed. Weatherfront is interested in telling its story in a way that mirrors this feeling. For this reason, the project shifts mediums as the story moves along. So far, this includes the podcast, On Top of Fooper's Hill, the audiobook, Stonewood, and plans for an upcoming radio play, a zine, another audiobook, and more. The tone of the project casts a broad net, too. At times, it's serious and tense, and at times, it's light and joyful. It's been said that Life doesn't cease to be funny when people die any more than it ceases to be serious when people laugh. You're about to listen to Episode 9 of Hooper's Hill, Bobby's Bangle Baby. I should set the scene. Hooper's Hill takes place in the remote valley town of Lulu, where a huge, monolithic facility has materialized overnight on top of Hooper's Hill. Its purpose isn't clear. Its hundreds of workers won't say a word. And its appearance comes concurrent with all kinds of perception problems among the people of Lulu. Suddenly, they aren't able to trust what they experience, think, or remember. Whatever that thing is on the hill, it seems to thrive on chaos. In the previous episode... Lulu is confronted with the disappearance of every house cat in town. We pick up there with vigilante archivist Storm Chaser and the people of Lulu trying to make sense of what just happened. We'll also follow several more intimate, personal stories as they unfold. Thank you for listening.
not my first go-around with obsession. I have a predilection for it, for fixating on one thing until everything around it withers up and probably dies in neglect. Other iterations of this quality have included monk-like asceticism, fasting for weeks on end, and recharging only periodically with simple starches and tea. Meditation exercises, that was one. I once sat in a meadow for several days, trying to shift my consciousness from behind my eyes to my thumb or wherever to my knee. And then to non-corporeal objects like rocks and stalks of wheat. My mind would sit in a nearby stone and observe my body in a detached way, without ownership. When mosquitoes would land on me or wild animals would sniff at me, I would watch from the rock as they did with my body what they wanted. Drank my blood, curled up in my shade, nudged me around. That was the intention anyway. I never got any good at it. Mostly I just sat there thinking about how cool it would be if it worked. That and remembering things. Dredging up embarrassments. Hurting my own feelings with old memories for no reason. Exercise was a phase. Marathon training in particular which culminated nine separate times in overexertion, which led to injuries that became increasingly permanent, especially to my joints and tendons. I never did run a race. I spent many, many nights limping through the dark for hours, trying to get ready for a race that never happened. My introduction to my sleeper cell the modern augers. That took over my whole life by design. It was a whole initiation process that, you know, it involved a complete tearing down and building back up of myself in many ways. Among probably my most regrettable phases, there was a time I believed that deliberately entering into addiction and then fighting back addiction would break the trance of modern life. That this would interrupt cycles of comfort and routine and bring me closer to something like really living. That was a dangerous and miserable time and a dark process I wouldn't recommend to anyone. It was coming out of one of these dark places I read a lot of self-help books. As you'd probably expect, I found some of them insightful and others, I guess, cheap, hackneyed advice to sell books to people who are lost, like I was. I read one book, which I won't name here. I'm not sure I even finished it, but it turned a phrase that stuck with me and keeps occurring to me now. The author wrote that 
modern man has thrown a brick through his own window so he can sell himself a security system or something to that effect. When I think of the disappearance of the house cats in Lulu, I think of that quote, manufactured crisis. I should say what I'm thinking point blank. I think the cats have been abducted by the people on Hooper's Hill. And I think they've done this so the citizenry has something to worry about that isn't Hooper's Hill. I guess like a distraction while the real trouble happens where no one's looking. It should be easy to find out, shouldn't it? I have hundreds of recording devices placed and functioning beautifully everywhere. Well, my equipment, all of my equipment blanks out for about two and a half hours the night of the mass feline disappearance. That's so troubling. I've never had an issue like that before. My equipment is designed not to be susceptible to tampering or interference. So I'm afraid the technology on Hooper's Hill, it must be better than it was before. Better than I knew it was. Which makes me, all of us, beyond vulnerable. So I'm reminded of Richard Nixon and his sections of missing tape. From 1-11, early the morning of the event, to 3.39, nothing. No tape, just blankness. So that was when it happened. The equipment comes back on and the cats are gone. Anyhow, everyone learned about the disappearance event in different ways, but I'll spare you playing the countless recordings of people saying and discovering and discussing that their cats are gone. I'll share just this one. Chesterfield Brownie Brown. Where the hell's Mookie? My little fluff man. My baby boy. My Mook Mook. I know he'd never leave me. Well, come to find, he's not the only one. It's all of them. Old cats, little kitties, middle, in-between cats. And then I get to remember in this time at church a couple weeks ago, Carl O'Connell stands up and he starts talking about these, these visitors of ours, these guys on the hill. And everyone's like, well, thanks for another tall tale, Carl. Shut up and sit down. But Mookie goes missing. I think I'm piecing something together. Dime Box, Texas, 1973. Open your eyes, people. It's real. And that lights a fire under me. But I got a big scavenge lined up. I can't push back. Can't afford not to do it. Not with what Angus has us paying him. But as soon as I get back, I'm sneaking. Go back and get my mook man from these 
these monsters. I associate Duncan Coons with his house cat, probably because it was in the relatively early going of my time here that I captured a recording of his mother, Janet, saying this. Duncan's sitting on the couch, and he has Earl the Pearl Monroe in his lap. That, that's the cat. And he's holding Earl's little legs up so they were nose to nose. But he wasn't playing with him. He wasn't being fun. He was trancing out on him like he was on drugs, staring at him with this deep, creepy intensity. He's always loved Earl the Pearl Monroe. Well, I would think Duncan would be beside himself with the vanishing of Earl, but he hasn't even been talking about the house cat. Duncan has been talking about Candace Bauer, spending time with Candace, making plans with Candace, Duncan Coons. So my mom, Janet, expects me to go to Gonzaga. You know, a respectable Jesuit school for a nice young Christian boy, right? We toured the campus, I was accepted, and Janet accepted their acceptance. So we have what she tells me is a plan. And I'm just so sick of this crap. Because it puts a ton of pressure on the, the situation with Candace, you know? Because Candace can't go to college. She doesn't have the grades, the money, and her foster parents won't even let her get a job anyway. So, you know, she's stuck. She thinks she's stuck. See, I want Candace to come with me to Spokane. She can work. I can work. We can get an apartment together while she takes classes at the community college. But she won't do it. And I bring it up to my mom, too. And she's really not having it either. Like there's something wrong with Candace. That kind of person. Those kinds of people, she says. The Bowers. I mean, come on, can I just say poor people? Because it looks to me like we secretly don't like poor people. And Candace is getting desperate, so she keeps talking about moving in with the O'Connells. And I'm like, no, I'm the one who wants you. Just come with me. I mean, can't anybody try anything my way? So... I'm taking a meeting this weekend with someone about my career because I'm just not in the mood anymore. Thank you. 
I just play the scripted part When can I go? It's a strange thing about shared crisis, the kind of connection that can form in the midst of adversity, when emotions are all packed into a small space on high heat, where one feeling can be confused with another. I've pulled that move. I rely on you, becomes, I must love you, becomes, I need love from you becomes, you've disappointed my heart, all at once, in a single moment, the whole arc of a love tragedy playing out inside somebody's head. Deputy Steve Steves IV. Early this morning, we get an alert about a security alarm sounding in a private residence. Security alarm fever has taken a hold of the valley. And we get there, and it's ringing out loud, and O'Connell doesn't think twice. She jumps out the car and starts towards the home. And I grab her. No, I... I don't grab her. I reach for her. And I touch her about the softest you can touch somebody. Just on... Well, on her sergeant stripes. I can't watch her go ahead of me again. And she stops. And she turns to me slow. And she really, really looks at me in a way that freezes the world. And I say, Marianne, I love you. And she puts her hand on my shoulder. And she turns away from me. And she hustles up the drive right up into the house. You know, the police sergeant probably has more pressing things to deal with than inopportune declarations of feeling. Police Sergeant Marianne O'Connell. Yes, I did have um, uh, an exchange with Deputy Steves. I I think I need to withhold comment. Sergeant O'Connell hasn't told husband Carl about any of the business with the deputy. She doesn't tell Carl much at all. 
she gives him instead her go-to line about practicing discretion with all topics work-related. The typical conversation goes something like this. Carl says, how is your day? And Sergeant O'Connell's response always boils down to, I'm not at liberty to disclose that. And then they go back to whatever it was they were doing before, in silence. Eating, watching TV, chores. Well, more likely Carl is doing these things. The police sergeant is almost always fighting through paperwork. Sometimes they'll be sitting on the same couch, and Carl will text Marianne what he thinks is a funny internet meme he just found playing on his phone. And then a few minutes later he'll go, Did you like my meme? And she'll go, Oh, I haven't opened it yet. I saw you sent me something. And then she'll open it up, and she doesn't text him back. She just tells him, That's funny. That'll happen sometimes three or four times in a night. In spite of this culture or, I don't know, habit of silence in the O'Connell household, Carl is on the scent of something. The police sergeant is preoccupied with something. Pharmacist, husband, Carl O'Connell. Why are the O'Connells behaving like weirdos? Why the obsession with abandoned children? Is it such a loveless marriage? Why don't they have their own kids? Frances Tillman, Candace Bauer, Joe. These aren't everyday kids. These are strays that want moms and structure and rules. Francis doesn't get that with Tamara. Candace's mom is always in prison. Maybe we actually care. Maybe we aren't just trying to distract ourselves or plug some hole in our marriage. That's what people are saying, isn't it? There's nothing weird about caring. But, Joe, the way Mary Ann talks to Joe, the way she goes to him, just as soon as he clops into town, how are you eating? Have you made any new friends? Are you warm enough at night? I'll hear her shifting around in bed, kicking at the blankets, having what she calls monkey brain, and I'll say, you okay? Can I get you something? You need water? Do you think Joe walks kind of bow-legged? And I'm thinking, yeah, he rides a horse all day, he probably would. And I say, yeah. And she goes, huh. Just, huh, like I'm agreeing to something she's already thinking. But 
what? Why Joe? Bobby's bangle baby twists in limbo and fits we call the city seeking word this part is never pretty the parting is always hard the party hits an end is retired Now where's that second wind Where are our friends If not in the moon?